you're hiking Mount Everest, but look how far we've made it already. And look at the view. It looks a lot better than down there. And look how far we've come. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how they've stepped up their influencer marketing to work with celebrities, why he invested millions of dollars of his own money into his company, and how he got retailers calling him to carry his products. Today, I'm joined by Josh Snow from Snow. Snow is the number one selling teeth whitening system guaranteed to work on all smiles. We're starting in 2016 based out of Phoenix, Arizona, and is projected to hit $100 million in revenue since inception. Welcome, Josh. Hey, thanks so much, Felix. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, excited to have you on. And I wanted to really talk to you because you've already had plenty of self-made success before launching the, the Snow brand. So tell us about your past. Like, where did you come from? Yeah, so I... Um I kind of stumbled, I stumbled into entrepreneurship, um, maybe unlike our, maybe like a lot of others. Um, and I want to be a doctor growing up. And, um, I kind of stumbled into entrepreneurship because I was 13, 14 years old. And, uh, you know, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to work. I wanted to get a job and, you know, I couldn't really find a job because I was under the, the working age. And, uh, I was hanging out at the public library, um, where obviously there are computers and books. And so there was a reading competition and I started reading the four dummies series and I had always been interested in computers and I was really good at typing because I um, had a weird hobby growing up when I would watch cartoons and stuff as a kid, my mom brought home an extra keyboard from her work and uh, I would literally type out, um, I guess, transcribe like cartoons and like shows I was watching and I just did it for fun. And I got, I got really good at typing, which ended up, lending itself toward uh, learning web development when I was 13, 14 years old, um, because I kind of realized instead of playing games, I wanted to make games. And I wanted, instead of playing out websites, I wanted to make them. Um, and I got really, really hooked on creating websites. I never knew that you could make money from it. Uh, I never knew that that was what I was going to do. But once I started creating websites um, for fun, and then you know teachers would see me staying after school, working on websites, um, they started saying, hey, my, you know, my, my friend, who owns a you know, bakery or my friend who owns a auto repair shop needs a website uh, And this was, you know, this was before, um, before Shopify, when things were a lot more difficult, a lot harder to get started with the, the websites, but I didn't know any better. I was 14 years old and, you know, they offered me 500 bucks to make a website. And I said, you know, heck I could, I could use the money. I was trying to save up to, to get my first car. And so I started making websites, uh, as a teenager and, uh, and then I, and then I couldn't stop. I, all I could think about while I was in school was, was building the next website. And then eventually I stumbled into e-commerce, um, because clients wanted to sell their products, you know, do their website. And so I started to learn about that whole world and, uh, kind of never looked back. Got it. So you started learning about e-commerce, started getting exposed to it. What about e-commerce hooked you like the way learning about computers or playing on the computer hooked you to creating websites? Initially, I was really excited by eBay because every time my family needed something, I would say, hey, before you, we go to the store and, and buy it, I think I could save us some money if I find it on eBay, uh, you know, in the in early, earlier days of Amazon and all that. So uh, I love the uh, vast catalogization of the Internet and being able to find very specific 
uh, parts and pieces and, and all that. And so I kind of became the, um, uh, the Dexter for the family and for the neighborhood where it was like, Hey, Josh, fix my computer. Hey, Josh, I'm looking for this part. You know, can you find it online? And so I love being able to find whatever I wanted, uh, online and generally at a discount. And then just the magic of ordering something in, in seconds. And then a few days later, it shows up at your house. And it's just, um, that magic of click, click, boom, it's there, um, was really, really exciting. And then being able to see, my clients early on transformed their businesses. They had zero online sales, like an auto repair selling, you know, parts uh, for Ford cars and GM, et cetera, being able to eventually outpace their offline growth. And these were like 20, 30 year old businesses and they were outpacing their growth um, through their website without having to have a storefront. Um, and that was really exciting. Seeing the transformation of, of offline to online really got me excited. made me think about, how many other things could could be sold online and how can we make that experience better and better for the customer got it so we've only you know talked about the things that have gone right so far on your path what are some of the challenges during this path of creating websites to transitioning to e-commerce through ebay to then eventually working and building website e-commerce websites what are some of the challenges that you face along the way that maybe had your second guessing if you're on the right path or not you know i think the the first thing was generating traffic, you know, generating sales and getting people to the website. That was tough because, you know, I started off with a hundred bucks, you know, that's, that's all I had, you know, to, to my life savings. And so the only thing that I, you know, and I went and read every book I could, I went on YouTube and I went on forums trying to figure out how can I get more people to my website and how can I get more people to my clients' websites and, you know, AdWords and all these other things, paid advertising was around. The only thing that stood out to me was searches and optimization, SEO, because that was something that I could do for free. Um, and I said, okay, I got, I guess I got to become the best at SEO because I can't afford to do anything else. And that ended up be, becoming uh, an incredible blessing because I, uh, I had to, by necessity, become really, really good at it. And it turned out that not many people were really good at, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm generalizing, but um, at least in my area, not, not many people could do SEO at the level that I could. Um, and that meant that I could generate, you know, a lot, potentially millions of dollars of sales for clients with effectively zero dollars in ad cost. And then I could replicate those strategies and test them on my own stuff. Um, so that was a, a, a low cost way. It just took my time. Uh, so the, the struggle in the beginning was how do we get people to the website? Um, and then eventually how do we get, um, uh, you know, how do we create that customer experience? They keep coming back. So it kind of trickled down, but I would say, um, and it's never left me. That challenge is still, every time I start a business is like, which channel is it? Facebook ads is Snapchat ads, Pinterest, wh which channel mix is going to be most effective for this business. And, uh, you know, what is the most affordable, you know, at the stage of the business to, 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 to try out and, and try to conquer. But SEO is something I figured out early on and that allowed me to eventually get into paid media uh, where things really took off. Got it. So let's talk about the time frame. So between the time that you were first uh, building websites to your the first time you opened your own your own online business, what was that time frame? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so I was 13, 14 when I started um, creating blogs and then creating websites. And um, you know by 15 or 16, 
I was um, working for a bunch of different clients and it was easy to get clients through word of mouth because, um, you know, everyone was talking about this, you know, teenager who could make a website in a weekend, um, you know, for a fraction of the cost. So uh, that great value really spread the word. And this was in uh, 2007 to 2010 when um, a lot of small businesses were realizing they had to have their own websites and uh, they really wanted to sell their products online um, as opposed to just having an online brochure, like just a basic website. So it was a really good, it was really good timing for a lot of these businesses to want to get online. And, um, and that was during, you know, when I was 13 to 16 is when I was really learning a lot about web development, web design. I remember I couldn't afford Photoshop early on or, or InDesign or any of the Adobe tools. Um, so I remember downloading, um, you know, a, a pirated copy of it and then it kind of messed up my computer, but I was like, at least I'm able to, you know, I couldn't afford the 500 bucks or whatever it was initially. Um, you know, and I remember it messing up my computer. I was like, okay, the first thing I'm doing is buying, uh, you know, an authentic version of Photoshop. So this doesn't happen again. Um, but I had to learn all that stuff. So by the time I was 16 though, I, I realized that I wanted to start doing some of my own stuff on the side, mostly because, um, the clients were a lot more risk averse. They didn't, you know, I would tell them about a, a new technique or a new strategy. And they were like, it sounds great, Josh, but you know, does it work? And I'm like, I, I don't know, but I think it will work. So I knew I needed my own projects on the side as a test bed before rolling things out to clients. And little did I know those side projects ended up becoming massive um, because there was a, you know, there was no red tape. I could just do whatever I wanted on there and, and cutting edge techniques and things I was thinking about. And uh, so that was 16. Uh, that's the 16 to 20 range is when those, those those things started to take off. What was that first side business that, that turned into something something massive where it was totally eclipsing the kind of revenue and income that you're making from these clients? Um, well, I started um, I started a, re- a couple review websites, and um, you know I it's funny because I wasn't I wasn't a huge I wasn't an avid reader. Or an or uh, an avid writer at the time, but once I realized I could make money from it, um, then I. Be, uh, it's funny how that works. All of a sudden, I became a, 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 a you know super avid reader mm-hmm. and a uh, super diligent writer, and so I started creating these review websites on um, software products, on uh, technology, on iPhone accessories, and all this stuff. And uh, I found out about Google AdSense first. And I remember making, you know, a few pennies a click. And then eventually um, I found out about <clears throat> about affiliate marketing. And then I started to take on my clients and say, how about you just pay me a percentage of all the sales that come online? Zero percent of your sales come from the Internet right now. I won't charge you anything. I'll do all the work for free. And then you just cut cut me in on whatever comes in online. But I started to see my side project and side deals start to take off because there was a snowball effect to SEO and the more content I was creating, uh, the better I was getting at SEO. And then I was reinvesting the money I was making from my clients. First, I bought Photoshop. Then I bought a computer, my own computer. That was really the first computer we had in the house. Um, then, you know, internet access and then my first car, um, you know, and, and it kind of started to snowball from there. And before I knew it, I said, wow, if I had 10 of these websites, um, and then it wasn't just me writing content. I went to, um, I went to odesk.com, which is now Upwork, and Elance and Freelancer.com and started hiring other writers and training them how to write 
uh, for me so that I could focus on SEO. And then eventually I started hiring an SEO team in India, Pakistan, Philippines, even the U.S. because I was in school. You know, I was in school from, you know, 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. football practice. So I, I literally went to Google and searched how to hire people online and found the freelancing economy. And I started to build my own team to not only help with the client projects, but also to help with my side projects, which really started to take off the affiliate revenue, um, you know, started to skyrocket. And I literally was just at school all day sleeping and the websites were growing and growing, and growing. And then I found a marketplace called SitePoint, uh, which is now Flippa, uh, where I could sell these websites. So I was like, whoa, I can build something from scratch. I can have my team work on it get the revenue up, and then I could sell it for a revenue multiple. Um, and I started getting really good at flipping those websites that I was creating. And that's when things started to really take off, where I was like, I think I can make a lot more money doing these side projects. But at the same time, my client business also started to take off because we switched from just website design and development when it was just me to advertising management. So we started managing millions of dollars. And I say we, it was still me locally, no office. But I had maybe 20 freelancers who were working online for me through Skype, um, you know, uh, managing SEO. You know, we started to charge $10,000 a month, $20,000 a month to some clients for SEO projects, uh, managing millions of dollars of AdWords spend. Um, and then obviously Facebook started to creep up in there and, and managing that spend. So that started to also take off. So it was a constant battle of which site could make more money, my side projects or my main project, which was building uh, uh, helping build the businesses for my clients. That's that's amazing. I think what one one theme that I'm hearing from this that that you seem to have either never encountered or you can smash right through it is this hesitation that entrepreneurs have to look for permission or look for why do I deserve or why and why would someone hire me? Why do I deserve this kind of success? But you just kind of kept on going 100 miles per hour and not even stopping to consider that. Did you, is that true? Like, did you ever think like, why would, you know, if someone hired 15 year old, 16 year old, 17 year old to manage millions of dollars of ad spend? Oh gosh, Felix. By the way, my middle name is Felix. I don't know if I mentioned that. That's funny. Um, nice. My grandfather's name is Felix. Anyway. Um, oh gosh. I, I thought of that every day. I was so, you know, and that, that eventually led to snow because in the very beginning, you know, I was, I was like six feet tall by the time I was 12 years old. And that's what made me go with football and basketball and stuff. I was a bigger guy, but I was like, what can I do when I meet a client in person to make me seem older? Like the worst, the scariest thing for me was if someone asked how old I was, because now I think it's, it's a general, um, <clears throat> it's well known, I guess that, you know, it's okay for younger people. You see, you see executives, and, and, and billionaire CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg and, and uh, Evan Spiegel from Snapchat being in their 20s, um, you know, that wasn't normalized back then. It, it was still, you know, 50, 60 year old executives running Internet companies. Um, and so that was scary for me. I was so ashamed um, most of my life. And I wish I could take that back. It eventually I eventually broke that limiting belief. But it was like oh my gosh, I'm 15, 16 years old. Like there's no way I could ask for $5,000 for a website. Like they're not going to pay that. I have, I have to handicap my price because of my age and blah, blah, blah. And so I would deepen my voice on the phone and, you know, I would whiten my teeth so that my teeth were whiter when I smiled on my first impression. And, you know, I bring my briefcase and I dress up. And what I realized though, is that over time, my, the work started to speak for itself. And the more that I became myself, uh, you know, showing up in jeans and just, just really sinking into that 
of who I really was, um, people just felt more comfortable hiring me and working with me because like this guy, you know, he's not putting up a show. He's not telling me something that I don't feel that he can deliver on. He always delivers. So being consistent on your integrity and your follow through and then just kind of settling into that help. But yeah, I would say what helped a lot for me was watching reading and watching uh, stories of, um, you know, the Forbes list, for example, just to be like, look at these, you know, huge success stories. You know, they must have started with a silver spoon or they must have had some secret or leg up and realizing that, you know, uh, a, a lot of them didn't. A lot of them were self-made. A lot of them started in even worse positions than I did. Um, and that helped me, that helped push me through a lot of dark days where I was doubting myself. Even going to university, being the first in my family um, to go to university uh, and sitting there in the honors college at Arizona State University, I still had those limiting beliefs of like, you know, hey, you know, can you do this? Um, you know, are you pushing too, are you aiming too high or, you know, are you being greedy or, you know, all these things. And then the, the imposter syndrome of, you know, am I really good enough um, to, to do this? And I still, I will be honest with you and candid that every once in a while, those thoughts still come in my mind. And, you know, as you aim higher and higher and higher, and now we're aiming at, you know, disrupting a massive industry, it's like, you know, you know, can we do this? But then I'm constantly reassured by our customers, our team, our track record, and kind of entrepreneurs get so focused on the future and living in the future that it's hard to enjoy the present and be proud of the past because we're so future oriented that uh, we're never happy with the status quo. And so learning how to become happy and say, look, I'm 16 years old and I'm making $5,000 for a website and the, the client's happy and referring more business. Like this is amazing. And so I had to learn how to tell myself that over and over again and reading those stories of from, from, from rags to riches so that it started to shatter those limiting beliefs little by little. Yeah, I think a part of it is, is this fear, too, that if you enjoy the present too much, you're too happy with the results that you have, it takes away from that fire, from that hunger. But have you seen that to be true? You know, because Especially, I want to get your advice specifically because you've had so much success and you had strings of success. Has it, has looking at life that way, has that slowed down the potential progress? And is that okay? Well, I think it's okay to, to take, a, take a breather. Sometimes, you know, it's it initially I remember getting started and I was like, okay, if I can just make enough money, I won't have to work at McDonald's. Like that was the initial thought was like, I don't, you know, that was like, if I can make, you know, $10 an hour, you know, break it down, then I don't have to work a quote unquote normal job as a teenager. Then it was like, okay, if I make enough money, maybe I don't have to go to college. You know, that, that was kind of the next thing. And maybe I don't, maybe I can tell, I have the strength to tell my parents I don't and the confidence that I don't want to be a doctor, um, you know, and, and because I wanted, I wanted to go in the medical field because I wanted to make good money to help my family out. And I wanted to help people. I wanted to genuinely help people. When I realized that I could help people through the internet, through business, and I could make a decent living doing it and create an opportunity and create jobs for other people. Then I was like, wait a second, it checks all the boxes. What's wrong with, you know, being vocal about the fact that, I want to be an entrepreneur and, and I didn't even know what that was, but like, I want to, I want to do this for the rest of my life and I don't know where it'll take me, but I love it so much and I'm helping people. I just want to keep doing it. And so, um, I think that taking a breather, um, you can certainly, I, I went through a, a, a delayed burnout period when I was, I think 21 years old, um, you know, after selling a company and just kind of feeling like I, I had lost my purpose. Like I had, 
I was so used to, you know, I graduated at 20 years old. So I, you know, I came in with no credits and I was taking 22 credits a semester, finishing up my honors thesis my freshman year, running my business from my dorm room, uh, you know, taking calls all day long. Like I had so much going on. And then I went to, I graduated college at 20 years old. So all of a sudden I could work 16 hours a day. So I did that. Then when I sold my business, um, I didn't, I wasn't working 16 hours a day anymore. And I kind of like realized that the pursuit was my happiness. And there wasn't like this, th- this number, or like if I hit this number, I'll be happy. Or if I hit, you know, something, I realized that for me, that was arbitrary and it really had nothing to do with a number. It had to do with my passion, my purpose and helping people, impacting people and creating opportunities. So for me, taking a breather, I think is very natural to say, wow, look at where we're at and look at what we're doing. Yes, there's so much more to go, but stop and smell the roses. Look at the view. You know, you're hiking Mount Everest, but look how far we've made it already. And look at the view. It looks a lot better than down there. And look how far we've come. And I think that also uh, invigorates the uh, endurance you need because I, I realized that if you want to build something that's around for 50 years, or you want to build something that's truly impactful on a global scale, or you just want to build something that truly makes an impact on your life long-term, it's a marathon. It's not a race. Uh, you're racing the marathon. Sure. Maybe that's, that's part of it, but it really is a marathon. You have to pace yourself uh, and you have to know when to sprint and when not to. And I'm still figuring that out, but I certainly have gotten a lot better with mental balance. Um, I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. Um, we are doing better than we've ever done before. And I think that goes to, to speak to how I structure the culture for myself in my own mind and then how I try to share that with the team so that everybody's not working 24 hours a day or, you know, saying we're a startup and startup culture and work 18 hours a day till you burn out. Um, it's very much, you know, like especially now we're in the space that we're in. It's like, hey, people are going to have teeth for the next 50 years, we believe. And uh, we believe that you know, yellow teeth or stained teeth are never going to be in fashion. Uh, so, so we're in a space that, you know, we have that room to grow and that space to kind of, uh, run the marathon versus race the, 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 the relay or the race. Uh, so I would say, yeah, it's still, I still have those moments, but I look at it differently. I don't look at it as like, okay, I should be happy where I'm at. Let me be complacent. I'm asking for too much. Instead, it's like, wow, look at how far we've come already. And if we've been able to do this with limited resources and no outside funding and a small team, imagine what we can do in 10 years from now if we just keep this up. And so it's like it's more of like nice view, amazing roses. I love it. And uh, when you guys are ready, let's 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 pack back up. But you got to stop in for a water break. You got to stretch your muscles. You got to enjoy the view a little bit. You got to feel good about it. Otherwise, you will you run the trap of, of uh, burnout. So I think this is important about this, the marathon versus the sprint. Why do you think, why do you think entrepreneurs, why do you think that they have, feel this compulsion to, to sprint when it's almost said everywhere that it is not everywhere, but like it's, it's pretty common advice, not that it is a marathon, but there's still this compulsion to sprint. Why do you think that is? Well, once I, once I, uh, had my Maslow's hierarchy of needs that, you know, food, shelter, security covered, you know, sometimes, you know, people are working a job that covers that for them. And so they're able to moonlight working on their business. Um, understanding that it, it is a marathon um, versus a sprint. And if you sprint too often, you will burn out and it will hurt you. You can sprint inside of the marathon. Certainly there are times for that. But just realizing that life is long and like um, 
you know, it's the, the overnight success story is, is very, very rare, uh, if ever. And, um, you know, uh, understanding that looking at some of my favorite businesses and that they were built over a period of 30 years. And you look at Apple and you look at, um, you know, even a lot of people say, you know, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, you know, people that look up to you, John Paul DeJoria from, from Patron and Paul Mitchell hair care systems. Um, you look at it, it's a 30 year marathon. And sometimes companies go through even bankruptcies and multiple things that happen throughout that before they're the ubiquitous name that everybody knows. So that builds character and that makes you stronger and things don't get easier. They get harder, but you can get better. And just taking that approach of saying, okay, I will never be broke again. I have a skill set. I can always go get a job. I can always figure something out. Um, and just saying, uh, you know, I don't want to burn out. I want to do this right. And it's more important for me to be in business 30 years from now than it is to have, you know, an overnight success or a one hit wonder. And to just be conscious of that, especially when you bring on a team or you have other people working with you. The last thing you want to do is burn out those incredible people, especially the, the, the people early on who are taking a leap of faith to maybe take a salary cut to work, you know, work with you and all of that and have respect for, uh, have respect for the marathon. And, uh, if you do that and you understand that you can't hike Mount Everest in a day, um, you know, and, and, and it's dangerous in many aspects, right? So just thinking of it that way, uh, the compulsion is natural. I still fight it today. We're sometimes like, Oh, there's an opportunity here. Let's jump on it. Sure. Certain times you got to run, you got to sprint. Uh, but the majority of the race is a marathon and it's about endurance and it's about resilience uh, and, 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 you know, bouncing back, adapting along the way, being conscious of that. So once I realized that the, the entrepreneurs who I really look up to have built significant businesses over a long period of time, did not do it overnight, weren't right all the time. And, and that perfectionism uh, a lot of times leads to disappointment or, you know, leads to burning yourself out or other people out. So just really looking at other people's stories, looking at my own past and realizing instead of like um, income hopping or like trying to find trends or, you know, uh, or now, you know, drop shipping is really popular, you know, just, just selling to it's nothing wrong with that. But um, trying to think of how can I build something for the long haul that is going to be respected for the the time we've been in business growing year over year and maybe there's a down year and that's okay. Just really like doing my research to understand that, um, you know, the, the media might glamorize overnight success stories or what seem like overnight success stories. But once you dig deep enough, you'll see that uh, this is not Elon Musk's first rodeo that he's been doing this for a long, long time. Um, and even what he's working on now with space and energy and vehicles, it's not an overnight sprint. It's something that's going to take a very long time, even with someone with the resources and past a record and intelligence of someone like an, an, an Elon Musk, it still takes time. And so I realize that and I have to keep telling myself that so that every time I get the urge to sprint, I have to remember that is it the time to sprint to exhaust the energy right now or do I need to pace myself at, pace myself at this moment in the race? Yeah, I think a part of it too is just, especially when you're starting something new, there's this need to find out as quickly as possible if you are investing your time in the right thing or not. What's your process? How do you know if you, especially if you're thinking about building something that's going to last 30, 40, 50 years, how do you know if you are investing your time in the, the right thing or not? Like, are there certain 
things that you can look for, tests that you can kind of run, or just like thought experiments that help you out to make sure that you are investing your time on the right projects, on the right businesses, on the right things that you're doing throughout your day? Yeah, I've kind of, I'm still building that formula. I think, uh, you know, month by month, reviewing where we're at, what we're doing, what we're learning. I, I think that what I've kind of uh, figured out for myself up until now is that uh, disruption over innovation for us at the, the point I am in my life and where we are resource-wise, that um, disrupting. So, so you know, for example, you look at the mattress industry and, you know, not creating a whole new behavior. So telling customers or consumers, hey, instead of sleeping on a mattress, uh, you'll sleep on rocks or something like that. That's that's complete innovation, like out of left field, which high risk, high reward, certainly. But just like if you look at Tesla Motors, they're not saying completely um, stop driving regular, regular cars. It's like, look at this sexy car. It happens to be powered by uh, you know, uh, it's, it's an electric powered vehicle, um, but electric par- power vehicles can be sexy as well and premium. And then eventually saying they can be mass market and then eventually saying they can self drive because you gain the confidence. But it, that stuff kind of, you know, takes time. But I, I look at disruption over innovation is generally a de-risk proposition for an entrepreneur, depending on where they're at in, in life. Um, not to say innovation. I, I applaud and look up to those who challenge to, to, uh, to innovate from the ground up. Now, you can certainly innovate within your category, like our new system that we've, we've launched with Snow is com- completely innovative, but you know it's, it's, it's disrupting a space where consumers are used to whitening their teeth at home already. They're comfortable with that. Um, so I look at that, and then I also look at market risk and execution risk. And so market risk is something like um, Bitcoin, um, where some 16-year-old or me, another 18-year-old in the dorm room, could take me on with zero dollars. Um, that's a market risk that I'm not willing to take at this point in my life. Uh, execution risk, on the other hand, is um, you know taking a dormant category like mattresses and saying, or suitcases with a way, um, and, and looking at that and saying, okay, how can we disrupt the suitcase um, industry by making a better product with a better brand experience? <clears throat> and then how can we execute better than the other people that have been in this space and maybe execute faster, but not that a, you know, a 16 year old is going to come out with zero funding and be able to completely eradicate uh, our innovation. And so those are, that's a playbook I kind of leaned into, I'm leaning into right now. And then just understanding if it's something that's going to be around for 10 years, um, you know, is it something that we can continue to improve on? Business is tough. So ideally you like what you're working on even better if you love it. Um, you're obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with every market we go into. I read every research report and we're constantly learning. We stub our toe, but learning fast and just never giving up. And so if that's how you feel, it's kind of a feeling mixed with that checklist of, is it going to be around for 10 years? Is it a growing category? Is it a shrinking category? Um, you know, is, is it something that is being disrupted by the internet, replaced by the internet, robots, kind of just understanding where my landscape is going to be and what it's going to look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And if that's something that I'd be proud of being a part of for 20 years. And if it's not, because uh, I could certainly make a lot more money if, if that's what I was looking for, doing a lot of other things, right? There are a lot of other 
uh, industries that I could enter where it's much more lucrative out the gate, where I'm not having to reinvest every dollar and I can go into all this stuff. But for me, it's about that, uh, that purpose, that vehicle for purpose and for building a team for the long haul. And so that's kind of what I look at. It's not a, it's not a perfect dancer, but it at least will help people get to that. And you don't have to get to it overnight. I was building websites for, for clients and, you know, it, uh, you know, making my money that way. So I didn't have to work a normal job. And then eventually hedging my risk by creating moonlighting, creating my own projects. And so those started to take off. So still, it was still an eight year process. Um, but I eventually got to a point where I was like, I want to do something that I could do for a long period of time in a growing space where I potentially have an unfair advantage. So if you're, a, you know, if you're a dentist, you know, I happen to be friends with incredible dentists, celebrity dentists, and um, I had jaw surgery on myself. So I spent so much time researching. I wanted to be a medical school. So I love researching medical medical papers and, and the market. So that all led to me having uh, not a huge unfair advantage from the start, but a slight enough, at least for the fact that I was passionate and interested in what we were working on. And that's very important, um, you know, early on, but even throughout the way. Hey. Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Mm. So we talked a bit about the, the the limiting beliefs. So on the flip side of it, do you feel like there's a particular trait or attribute about you, about your personality that has kept you on this path to success? And like, if you didn't have this particular trait, you would not be where you are today? Oh, yeah, for sure. I would say that um, in two words, chase difficulty. So I'm someone who... Um, chases difficulty throughout my life. Um, I'm, I am competitive, but I'm not outwardly competitive. And if that makes sense, I'm very in my own head in terms of, um, you know, for example, graduating university in two years wasn't because anyone pressured me to do so. wasn't because I won an award or gained recognition or wanted recognition for it. It was simply one, my business needed me. I wanted to get a degree. I wanted to go to university. And, um, and I want to do it for me, my family, my future family, the community, and something that just, I was passionate about. But I realized that if I took 22 credits a semester, I could get it done sooner. So I'm constantly adding more and more to my plate. Um, and I try not to be too hard on myself. It's more of like, a, uh, it's more like a game. Like, you know, can I, can I do 10 meetings today? Like, can I knock five things off my to-do list? So I'm chasing difficulty and I've tricked my mind to really, um, almost, almost lust after it. Like, it's like, it gets me so excited to be like, Ooh, that's challenging where, you know, other people, uh, if you don't, you can train your mind to do this. Um, uh, I wasn't born with this, but I learned that if I chase difficulty instead of chase simplicity, that it will build an inherent moat. I'll learn from it. I'll get better. I may stub my toe. It might hurt. It might be painful while I'm going through the process, but next time I face it, I'm going to have that much better of a time going through it. And so anytime something bad happens or something's difficult in front of me, sure, it's easy to be uh, to ignore it or just say, I want to watch TV or I just want to sleep in or let's just avoid it and go the easier route. Instead, I'm like, let's figure this out, because clearly the people that have figured this out went through the same process. There's clearly a solution and it's going to make us stronger. And I think that my whole team has really adopted that uh, that mindset to say, oh, this is really difficult instead of raising my hand and giving up, let's do it. Let's go through it. You know, let's not go around it. Let's not go over it. Let's go through it. 
Um, and that means that sometimes it is painful, but chasing difficulty, resiliency, not giving up, I will never give up. That's something that I've really drilled into myself. I would never, ever give up on my team, on my customers, on our mission. Um, and you pair that with hard work and, a, um, you know, an obsession for wanting to build something that people uh, appreciate and experience and something that you appreciate, you've got a pretty good formula for success, in my opinion. So when you when you talk about chasing difficulty, it sounds like you are, like you're saying, you're trying to add a lot to your plate. How do you balance this with, with focus? Or is that not in the equation for you? Like, how do you make sure that you're not diverting your focus away from what will move you closer to your goals? Well, so I think that uh, mastery is, is, is found and developed through, through depth. Um, that's in my opinion. And so you need focus in order to reach the depth uh, where mastery lies. And so for me, I am chasing difficulty so that I can dive deeper and deeper. And if I never give up, you know, I'm 26 years old. If I am fortunate to live another 60 years of my life, I think for 60 years, I can chase more and more difficult things. The difference is every year I hopefully get better. I learn from my mistakes, other people's mistakes. Um, and I'm, I'm hopefully only going to get better, which means I can take on bigger challenges. And that's the way I kind of frame my life. And I balance that with health and, you know, uh, taking free time and mental space and reading and hanging out with friends. And I certainly have a great social life. So I certainly balance it as best as I can. Sometimes there, there isn't balance. And that's okay. And that's temporary. Um, but I'm cognizant of it. I try to be as cognizant as I can of, uh, um, you know, of that. But I would say, um, you know, uh, focus, you know, Bill Gates and uh, Ward Buffett both said the same word, focus, as uh, the one word they would recommend to entrepreneurs. And it's so easy with today, with the low barriers of entry of starting 100 different stores that you want to try different things. And, and that's okay. The earlier on, that's okay. What I found out, though, is that once you lock in on something, um, if you look at all the channels that Snow is on, just from advertising and marketing alone, we're on every channel that, that, that we want to be on right now. And there's 20 more that we would like to be on. And there's just so much to do within one business that you'll always have something to do. And so it's like SEO, Pinterest, retailers, patents, the, you know, accounting, um, you know, uh, team building, so much going on that I, I'd never, uh, I never check all the boxes from my task list for the day. Like that's just, I've accepted that I'll never have inbox zero, but I'm as close as I can. Um, uh, you know, priority kind of takes, takes leeway to urgency, um, urgency and priority together. And I'm going to get done what needs to get done by the end of the day as best as I can. And you realize that within one business or even one product, you have a never ending list for the next 50 years to do stuff. Um, and you realize that really what you're seeking for, you're seeking for validation from the market. You're seeking for gro you're seeking growth. And if you find that you can do that with focus, which is the truth uh, in any industry, there's a thousand, there are a thousand industries other than oral care that this applies to, and maybe many more, where if you just focus on, you know, bathroom supplies, tires, whatever that, and it doesn't have to be a product, it could be a service, um, that you'll have enough to do in what, inside of one focused project for a very, very long time. And then the fun stuff starts to happen because people get really good at starting from zero to zero to 0.5 or zero to one, but from one to a hundred is really where the difficulty, the, the extreme difficulty lies and beyond that. And that's what I'm chasing. So for me, um, 
people might get good at beating Super Mario Brothers, you know, levels one through 10 or Candy Crush levels one through 10. But um, if you like the game that you're playing and you want to be on the leaderboard, you have to keep playing that game. You can't switch between 20 different games because then you'll be on 50 different leaderboards at the very bottom. Um, but if you want to be on one leaderboard near the top, you have to play that game consistently for 20 years and uh, get better and better at it. And uh, doing levels one through 10 are no longer fun um, because it feels like you have a cheat code doing one through 10. It's no longer as fun as it used to be um, where, you know, going higher levels is, is, is where the excitement comes from. Got it. So you chase difficulty down the same focus path. That makes sense. Okay, so I feel like we spend a lot of time equipping our, our entrepreneurship mindset, ready enough to talk the tactics of everything that you've done. So let's talk about Snow. Where did the idea come from? So I was, uh, you know, I had braces multiple times in my life. I mentioned that I've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on lots of teeth whitening. Uh, you know, I tried everything I could find. I've tried for teeth whitening because... For me, I was a bit self-conscious of my smile growing up. Um, I had an underbite growing up and eventually, you know, uh, went in for surgery. And I, I kind of became friends with my uh, dentist and oral surgeon. And, uh, you know, they would see me come in on a Wednesday in the middle of the day and they're like, you're not in school. I was like, well, I graduated. And they're like, well, you know, I see the cars you're pulling up in. You know, what do you do? You know, um, and I, so I would start to share it with with. Um, my medical professional, what I would do. And then we started becoming friends. And as I was looking for categories, I wanted to disrupt and really um, stick to it for a long period of time. I knew that I needed a big category and oral care was something I was researching so much already uh, because I was going into jaw surgery and braces and all these procedures being done on my teeth. I recognized an opportunity uh, for me to essentially put um, my life savings into, uh, an industry I was intrigued by. Um, it kind of, um, uh, paid some homage back to me wanting to be a medical school and, um, you know, and, 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 and learning as much as I could in that industry and realizing there was, a, there was an opportunity for us to create something that was radically, uh, different, hopefully radically better. And in, um, and, and I kind of realized the selfie had as put a lot of attention on the smile on the face. And so you see a rise in makeup and skincare. And I kind of saw that the uh, oral care uh, market was, was kind of being neglected um, in terms of technology, true technology, uh, not, not anything like gimmicky or anything like that, true technology, true design. I said, I've been selling beauty products for a long time. Uh, my background's in programming and technology. I love high fashion. I love luxury products. Uh, and I said, what if I could combine all of those interests in a seemingly dormant category that I could grow in for 50 years? And, and, and oral care, you kind of lined up with that. Um, I had a lot of resources, you know, the dentist and everyone who I was, who I became friends with that I could tap into and kind of get research from and, um, learn from and get help from. So it just kind of all came together. And, it, and as I started doing more of our research, I realized that we had a, a really good opportunity in front of us if we wanted to take it on, but it wasn't going to be easy, still isn't easy. Uh, I don't plan it to ever be easy, but that again, I'm chasing difficulty uh, in a place I can be in for 50 years where we can be the market leader in our space. And I thought about when was the last time I was excited to buy toothpaste? Never. Um, you know, I said, why can't I be excited? Just like I get excited about buying a mattress now because it comes in a box. Why can't 
this market be disrupted? And why can't we, why can't we be the one to do it? And, uh, you know, it, it just matched my timing. It matched my resources. It matched kind of where I wanted to be and uh, kind of stumbled into snow with teeth whining initially. Uh, we're still very much known for our teeth whining system. We just uh, launched our new system. Um, but we also are launching, you know, uh, toothpaste and floss and many, many other products that our customers are asking us for. And we're really excited to bring to market. And so I realized that we have a, uh, an opportunity to continue to create innovate products and market products for a long period of time. And we're never going to give up, you know, no matter what comes at us, um, how big or how small, we are never going to give up this mission. Um, and if that means that um, you're right now, we're a self-funded, totally bootstrap, zero outside money um, uh, business. If that means that I have to, you know, raise a ton of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, Smile Direct Club is looking at an IPO, um, you know, that's exciting. Whatever that means for us, um, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing this for the market. I'm doing this for the entrepreneurship community. Um, I'm doing this because I feel like I have nothing else I could do in terms of that would keep me up at night like this does in excitement. Um, and, you know, I kind of I have the toys. I have the, the stuff that I wanted and it, it didn't bring me the happiness that snow brings me. And so for me, this is my life's passion. This is my life's work. And to be able to open the kimono and share that with entrepreneurs along the way, whether it's, you know, whether it's getting bullied by, you know, bigger companies trying to keep us out or whether it's whatever we're going through. I try to share that with other entrepreneurs to say, look, I'm going through this too. Here's the truth. Here's what's happening. Here's where we're at. And being as transparent as I can, and it's become a part of my identity. Um, and it's, uh, you know, and it's become part of my, my life mission now. Um, but that was just a result of saying, I see an opportunity. We have some unfair advantages compared to the, to, to maybe other people in the space. Can we take advantage of those unfair advantages to get a head start? And now with, you know, over 10 million people who shopped our website, just our online store and dentists who sell our product, med spas who sell our product, and now retailers who want to carry our product. We're like, okay, we're on to something. We just um, can never give up because we know now the market wants us um, and, and the industry wants us uh, in terms of the retailers and our partners. And once it kind of built, it creates a life of its own, you are now its caretaker. And I've become kind of a servant to uh, what has become snow and what is becoming snow. And that's kind of exciting because it's no longer your, just like your baby. It's, uh, you know, thousands of entrepreneurs who follow me, it's their baby too. They want to see the little guy win, uh, whatever that means. And, uh, our partners and our customers, you know, um, we have an incredible returning customer rate, um, even though we don't push subscription plans. And so we know that we're onto something. Um, we love what we're doing. And it keep it gives me life, and um, I can't put a dollar price on that. You know that, that I can't put because I've gone through burnout. I've experienced, you know, a little bit of I guess depression when I didn't have. I felt like I didn't have a purpose or anything like that. And this is uh, entrepreneurship is everything to me. It gives me life, and snow is a vehicle that I hope to be a part of uh, for the rest of my life. That's amazing. So, so you, you believe in this so much and you saw the vision for so, so far out that you were willing to invest a hefty amount. I think you mentioned that you invested uh, lots of your savings into the research and development of that first uh, system. So what, what kind of R&D was required to, to get this thing off the ground? Well, you know, initially, um, 
you know, it was maybe a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars to test the initial uh, product and kind of test a couple of the disruptions we wanted to do to the teeth whitening space and kind of understand, you know, where the market could could you know where the market had room to grow and, and all of that. And so um, that was the initial set, and then we've reinvested nearly every dollar um, back into the business, millions of dollars at this point. Um, to continue to um, mature, hire better and better people, better law firms, better accounting firms, um, uh, better team members, better software, um, you know, better marketing, uh, all of that. And as a result, um, you know, we have, you know, we feel like we're a tiny peanut compared to where we would like to be, but we've made so much traction in the last three years. Um, you know, I decided to go all in and double down and um, you know, and still haven't raised any outside outside funding. We we do get a ton of inbound uh, interest from a lot of different firms and, and agencies who who are starting to see what we see and starting to see that Snow is truly unique um, and truly has unique positioning that other companies would have a very very hard time um, mimicking or would become a me too. And so once that kind of starts to take fold. Um, it, it kind of it's 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 another layer of excitement because other people want to see you win. They want to they want to put a lot of money behind you to see you win, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, you want to put all your money on this this horse because it just keeps winning the race, and and uh, you want to make sure that it's taken care of. And so now, I, on a very philosophical level, because of the external support from the community and from the VC community and from retailers and partners and internationally, now it's like okay. Um, how can I really go all in? And uh, so, so now it's like I would put any amount of money uh, into this business um, because we're also trying to prove a point too that um, that a small company could rise in a in a dormant, competitive, com- really commoditized business and build a brand that is around for a very long time. And so I haven't exercised any of those opportunities yet in terms of external funding and certain things like that. And we've also never been to a trade show. We get all of our retail inbound, has been inbound uh, retail interest. uh, And all of our sales have been generated mostly by ourselves. I mean, 95% of our sales have been generated, you know, by our own two hands. Um, And really our customers have been our investors since day one. Um, And we've been fortunate to be able to put all that money back into research and development and we'll continue to do so um, until we feel that our products are truly uh, something that we're proud of. Mm. So, so obviously you're working at much larger scale than I think a lot of people that are listening. But when it comes to reinvesting, how do you know where to put your money to that, that in a way where it will add more you know, gas to the fire? Well, certainly sales and marketing are key because, you know, that's you know, without revenue, um, you know, it's, it's hard to grow a business and without profit, if you're self-funded, uh, um, like we are to this point, um, you know, you have to make sure that if you're putting a dollar in, you're at least getting a dollar back. And so being really diligent on what is the next best affordable step, we'd love to do a Super Bowl commercial, you know, this coming year, but it may not be in our, in our line of sight for this year, maybe next year, maybe the following year, but just understanding what's next, what's best and what's affordable at the stage of the business. Um, and so, you know, reinvesting is, has been very, very key for us because we're picking areas that we believe will either add to the customer experience or to the revenue growth of our business. Ideally, both. 
Um, and so whether it's packaging, whether it's customer support, um, you know, we're continually, continually breaking our customer support because when we scale, we realize that we need a stronger supply chain. We need more and more inventory. We fulfill every single package ourselves, um, you know, to, to, to every single customer. And so reinvesting in the team, um, uh, hiring the right people, uh, customer service, customer experience, packaging, uh, marketing, advertising, branding, uh, those things are key for us, supporting our retail partners, our dental offices, our med spas, things that we believe that if we put a, a dollar in now, we might not make a dollar in tomorrow, but we believe is going to raise the, the brand value of what, when people think of snow, um, you know, we get in front of 15 million American consumers every month um, through our advertising channels online. And one day we hope that to be 100 million um, uh, people a month. So just reinvesting in places that work. So just straight up math, put in a dollar, dollar fifty comes back. Okay, that's good enough. Um, you know, we can cover our costs. Then we can keep growing and we can keep learning from our customers. And then reinvesting in our customers themselves, um, whether that's promotions, new products that they're asking for, um, extending our product line, uh, extending our frontline customer support, extending our marketing team, and then continuing to reinvest into the brand. Um, so that we continue our, you know, our great traction. We don't, we don't ever want to lose that traction. Um, whether that, what that looks like on the growth numbers doesn't matter. But if we are continuing to earn the business of our customers and treat them better and better, you know, every six months, every three months, every month, then we're moving in the right direction. And, you know, we, we haven't been perfect, right? We, we we're learning. We, we had a massive holiday season, um, uh, last year and it overwhelmed our customer support team it overwhelmed our fulfillment staff it overwhelmed our inventory um it overwhelmed a lot of things and it broke a few things but uh, you know we move fast we break things and we try to fix them as fast as we can and we try not to compromise our products or our customer experience along the way Mm, so speaking of reinvesting in places that will give you an immediate return, like in, in sales and marketing, you mentioned earlier about the channel mixes that are most effective per you know business, per industry. How do you begin answering that question? And for someone out there that is trying to figure out how to invest their money when it comes to advertising, how do they figure out what's the right channel mix for them? Well, the, the right channel mix for us hasn't changed too much. It's evolving now as we move into offline and uh, we move into a um, you know much more regulated environment where we have to beef up our resources and, and on every single front. Um, it's talking to the customer, so that the you know that that customer, each customer is an investor of ours. That's how we look at it. Uh, someone who who took out money to to trust into our product. We're, we're not we haven't been around 50 years. We're not a uh, oh of course that works type product. We have to even though we have an amazing amazingly low um, refund and return rate because our product simply works. Um, we talk to our customers. We try to get them on the phone whenever we can to learn about them. Why did they buy? What, you know, what would make them buy again? What products would they like to see from us? That's invaluable uh, research that we'd have to pay a research firm a lot of money to try to figure out. Instead, we just call our customer and say, how's it going? You know, well, thank you. Uh, you know, what made you buy? What, what would you like to buy from us? Um, you know, what would make you share with your friends? Is there anything missing from your order? So talking to customers is key because then you get referrals. Um, so, you know, our referral program is very strong. We're building a, a very strong community um, of our snow ambassadors, our snow family who recommend the products 
on Instagram and Facebook to their friends and family. Um, you know, SEO is still a pretty strong staple of our business. And then, of course, you have the more expensive channels like Facebook and Instagram and Google, which are great for generating new customers and getting in front of new people and hopefully earning the right to um, for them to come back. And so, uh, you know, our mix right now is pretty diverse. I mean, we're on we're on Pinterest, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. We just finished a case study with Snapchat with Facebook case study. So we're trying to continue to innovate on the marketing front uh, on those channels. But now we look at retailers, wholesale accounts, uh, dental offices, med spas, international accounts. Uh, that's starting to become more and more a part of our conversation when we look at uh, massive you know, uh, uh, retail partnerships like department stores and cosmetic stores and all of that. And then you know, the thousands of dental offices uh, you know, who can sell our product and med spas and hair salons. So that just starts to grow and grow. And then eventually, you know, our own pop-up stores and our own retail outlets. And, uh, you know, so the list goes on and on. But right now, it doesn't differ too much from three years ago when we started, which is talking to the customer, learning from them, getting them excited, and giving them an opportunity to earn a little bit of money if they want to share the product. And if you do that, it starts to compound. And no pun intended, the snowball effect, it, it really does start to snowball over time. Got it. So let's take it back to the, the, the beginning. The, how did you guys launch the business? Like, what was, what was the launch plan to get Snow out into the marketplace? So we spent a lot of time on our formulation. I uh, worked with, uh, you know, our, our um, team of experts, our, our dentists, our oral surgeons, our orthodontists, who are friends of mine, to test the formula out in person, test it on patients, and give me raw feedback with no strings attached. Um, and continue to just innovate on that. And then reading as many reviews as we could from our customers, but also from other products that are already on the market. And, and then, you know, uh, launching on, you know, Facebook and Instagram and getting in front of an audience who we believe would be interested in our product. Um, and then, and then again, just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. So early on, uh, you know, Facebook and Instagram continue to be more and more expensive every single quarter. Um, and I get it. Um, so you have to become more and more um, disruptive with the type of advertising you're doing and really innovate on the type of creative and all of that. Uh, your product truly has to work. You have to get it to the customer fast. And uh, as those channels become more and more expensive, um, we start to open up additional channels. Um, you know, as an agile company, we're able to move quickly and aggressively with very large marketing budgets to be able to put behind it now. But early on, it was Facebook ads, Instagram ads, talking to our customers, um, you know, looking at the reviews on Amazon of other products, uh, continuing to iterate upon our product, our formulation, until we got to a point where our complaint rate was low enough that we felt like we could scale, um, and then expanding on Google, expanding on any channel we think could work, whether it's Pinterest ads, Reddit ads, Snapchat ads, giving it a shot and seeing if it fits our product market at the moment, and if it works, just uh, putting putting more coal in the fire. And you mentioned that the retail partners that you have are mostly inbound. How did how did that happen? How did, how how come people are able to just find out about you and start contacting you for these kind of retail partnerships? Well, I think that um, you know when people are looking for products, they depending on where they're at, and that happens a lot with the demographics. So if you're someone who is a lot younger. 
uh, you're a teenager or something like that, you know, you, you don't have, you might not have the, 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 your own budget, or you might feel uncomfortable asking your parents to spend, you know, over a hundred dollars on a teeth whining product, or, you know, our products are definitely affordable, but they're certainly premium. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a premium product that we come out with in every single product we launch, whether it's our anti-aging lip care line or teeth whining systems. Um, it's a premium product. So, um, I think that that naturally, uh, played well to the good, better, best kind of scenario where, um, generally people will try good product. Um, they'll move to a better product and eventually they'll move to a best product. And I look at my friends who have had, have had, uh, success and kind of have the budget to, to maybe shop in that best category. It doesn't mean the best always costs that much more, but, um, you know, they have their, their briefcase that they've had for 10 years and they spent, you know, a thousand dollars on it, but it's something that they cherish. It's a, it's something that's valuable to them and they carry it around versus maybe a $50 briefcase that breaks every year. Um, so I think because of that, the buyers at the different, uh, department stores and, and cosmetic stores realized that, um, they wanted to have a best product, the best option in a category that maybe has gotten used to good products and maybe better products. And maybe they saw a gap for best products. Um, and I think that our packaging, uh, is something we're very, very proud of. It plays very well in a retail environment. It's a demonstrable product, you know, seeing it in person makes you want to buy it that much more. Um, and then having the online push, I mean, we, we, you'll get so much traffic to our website and in front of our product that it drives that in-store demand like crazy. And so you see Target teaming up with brands like Harry's and, you know, we've been called the Harry's of oral care. Uh, you see them teaming up with Casper. And so you see these retailers understanding the value of having an upstart, uh, a disruptor in their store to drive foot traffic and to invigorate the brand experience as a retailer and kind of partnering up with those upstarts. So I think that as they look category by category, hopefully when they look at oral care, we're standing out as a contender for something that would look good on shelves, move product because of our demand. Um, and really the, uh, the, 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 the issue we face and the reason why I believe we're not 10 times bigger right now is because we're not in every store. We're not in a place you can go pick us up or try out the product or touch and feel it. Um, and we believe that's a huge opportunity for us. And I think that uh, experienced buyers understand that. They see that. They buy the product. Most of our buyers who reach out to us have used the product for several months and said that it's the best thing they've ever tried. It's truly unique, amazing packaging. And they see the revenue opportunity for the store. They see the brand experience opportunity. Um, and they get excited by the products we're coming out with and the marketing we're doing. And I can't help but believe you know, our celebrity customers and those who promote the product who are A-list celebrities also help drive that brand awareness and de-risk it for a retail buyer. Yeah, speaking of celebrities, you mentioned to us that celebrity marketing is a, a channel that, that has worked well for you. And, you know, this is definitely, it sounds like a scale above the typical influencer marketing that a lot of stores are, are, are adding to their mix. When it comes to approaching celebrities to work with them to be kind of, uh, I guess, representatives of your brand, of your products, do you have to approach them differently than you would, you know, like as a, a, a more typical influencer? Yeah, I mean, you have three essentially three buckets. That's how we put them in buckets. So you have your micro influencer who's generally your, our customer. 
who wants to share the product on social media. They're excited. They love it. Uh, and they want an opportunity to earn, you know, either snowflakes, just taking cash in for more products like points or, uh, you know, or make money promoting the product um, just because they, they're excited about talking about it. Most of our customers talk about the product and are not a part of our ambassador program. They just love talking about it. They're excited. A lot of times say, they say they're excited for the first time about oral care and, and they're, you know, all that. So um, that's a micro influencer category, someone with maybe less than 10,000 followers. Then you have your medium influencers. I would categorize that anywhere between 100,000 to a million followers now because of the maturity of the, of the social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram, and Snap. And, um, and so those medium influencers are generally people who um, we either reach out to because we feel that they match our brand aesthetic. We think that they would like our product. We always send our product to our influencers, no matter the size, because we want to make sure that they're confident of the product, that they know that they're going to feel confident promoting it and they're going to use it. Otherwise, we've turned down so many uh, uh, deals that are were in the pipeline because the influencer, quote unquote, was not using the product. They may be a fan of the product, but they weren't using it. And it's very hard to sell something or talk about something or be excited about something that you're simply being paid to talk about. We just don't, we're not a fan of that model. It certainly can work. Um, but a, a lot of our micro and medium or inbound people that are customers who are customers or are looking for a, a product they can get behind and feel confident and they find snow. And honestly, a lot of our A-list, you know, macro influencers, a million plus, our customers first and we'll reach out to them and say, Hey, it's been a few months. You know, have you had an opportunity to use the product? We'll reach out to the management team, whoever ordered. Um, we have a tool on Shopify called user gems, which will sort by the amount of followers the, the customer has. And we'll reach out and say, Hey, you know, did you get the product? Is there anything we can assist with? Uh, you know, do you like the product? And that kind of opens a conversation to say, is this a product you can get behind publicly? Is this something that we can do a campaign together or maybe launch products in conjunction with you? Um, you know, and if that conversation continues, then it starts to make a lot of sense. And I think that you look at, uh, uh, you know, uh, Floyd Mayweather, for example, the deal we did with Floyd Mayweather, he was a fan of the product and he, you know, he, the team was a fan of the product and, you know, that was um, a great opportunity because, Floyd was looking for, uh, Floyd and his team were looking for a product, an American company that had, you know, a certain level of aesthetic, a certain level of quality that Floyd wanted to get behind. And so in those scenarios, we just kind of facilitate the conversation. But if it's someone we're reaching out to who's an A-list, we have some in the pipeline who are incredibly, massively popular uh, A-list celebrities. And I can't name them because the you know, we're working on them right now. Usually I'd name everybody, but um, we're excited about it because the, a couple of them are, are people we reached out to that we feel match the brand for the next 10 years. And we believe can not just be uh, uh, product endorsers and brand ambassadors, but actual partners of ours, whether that means investors of ours or, um, you know, partners of ours on an equity scale or licensing deals. So we start to open that up and understand the world of licensing and partnering with celebrities, and that kind of uh, that kind of marketing we don't we don't look for a direct ROI on. We're not looking for a promo code and how much did that promo code generate or anything like that. We're determining does it match our brand where we're going, and some celebrities we've worked with in the past no longer match where the brand is going, and so we're not you know we're, we're kind of slowing down how we work with those celebrities and looking for new celebrities who do match 
our brand 10 years from now and that we want to, you know, quote unquote, get in bed with. And if they're excited about our product. So it's, it's a mix of outbound, reaching out to managers, agents, just really surveying the field, seeing what other brands are doing and seeing if that celebrity matches who our customer is and who our customer will be and someone we believe matches. And then we send them the product. We send their team the product. If they're happy with the products, if they're, if they see what we see, then we'll continue the conversation and try to figure out how we can work together. Um, otherwise, we try to turn our customers into advocates if they're a fan of the product. Um, and the medium influencers um, are you know, a mix of either we're reaching out to them because we come across them on the Instagram Explorer feed or we follow other brands, tanning brands or whatever it may be. And we say, wow, that guy or girl has a has a certain uh, style of the way they post and the things they talk about or a vlogger who talks about certain things. Let's see if we can send them some product and see if we can start a conversation on if they'd be interested in becoming an ambassador of ours. Um, really kind of organic. We don't have like one tool we use to find everybody or do everything. Uh, the majority of our business still takes place on Google Sheets. I mean, we still use a spreadsheet to keep track of a lot of these deals because it's not just about the quantity. It's also the quality because we're, we're trying to build a brand that's going to be around for a long time. Amazing. So Snow is a company at trysnow.com. And I'll leave you this last question. What is the biggest lesson that you learned last year that you want to apply this year? Thinking bigger, uh, it's a constant theme in my life and, and on our company's life. Um, thinking bigger and aiming bigger, meaning you know, going for bigger partners, thinking about offline the way we think about online in a similar way in terms of scale. And, and instead of just saying, no, we're never going to be an offline brand, saying, how can offline complement our online and vice versa? And really just thinking bigger. And then in terms of product line extension, and saying we're not just a teeth whitening brand, we're not just a lip care brand, you know, we really are a personal care brand um, that's focused on oral care. And how can we reimagine all the products down that aisle and create a unique experience for our customers and international? How can we, you know, bring our products to our international customers in a in a great way? And and then leveling up, thinking bigger and leveling up our resources. So leveling up who we're working with, leveling up our packaging, leveling up our, our technology, leveling up our office, leveling up our legal staff, our accounting, just being willing to, to think a lot bigger longer term. And I know that sounds paradoxical to everything I've aforementioned, but it really is something that is a constant theme. And last year, we really learned that people really, they don't, they just, they don't just want teeth whitening. They, our customers want snow. They don't just want toothpaste. They want snow. And realizing that um, we have a responsibility to stay in business and to continue growing for as long as we can. If that's 50 years, that's great. If that's 100 years, great. If that's 10 years, great. To be in business and grow for our customers uh, is something that we're instituting now as we look at additional products, beefing up our resources, um, internationalizing our brand, and, uh, and being willing to challenge ourselves with those bigger goals and being willing to do whatever it takes to, to, to make those happen. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on, Josh. Amazing story and very inspirational story as well. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your experience. Thank you, Felix. It's, it's been a treat. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.